<laughs> Hi everyone, welcome back to the channel. Today I'm delighted to welcome Chris Kendall, aka The Raw Advantage. If you're a subscriber, <laughs> you've probably already seen him on the channel a couple of days ago, but I've really enjoyed the Q&A with Chris so much so that I decided to have him on the channel. And I probably only asked about 10% of my questions, believe it or not, even though it may surprise you guys. So I just want to quickly introduce Chris very, very briefly, then I'll let him tell his story. But to me, Chris has been doing it, we'll round up, we'll say 20 years, this raw vegan lifestyle. He's also a pro skateboarder, raw chef. He's probably been to the moon and I think he might be a trapeze artist. <laughs> no, the last two. I all true, all true. <laughs> and he's also got a great physique. <laughs> uh yeah he's built a great deal of muscle as you can see as you can see but chris could you just give your story briefly for the audience i'm sure you're you've uh told it many times more than my pleasure man thanks so much Dylan, for having me on i had a, a blast on the other uh q a as well and I, I really appreciate all your questions so i'm really excited to dig in with all the ones that you didn't ask that's lots of fun um so yeah, yeah my name's chris kendall i'm from saskatoon saskatchewan canada I was born in 1980 there by the time of 19, uh, I had lived on my own for two years or with a bunch of different skate friends and my diet and lifestyle really went down south. My parents did a good job raising me and, you know, mostly Whole Foods, a, a healthy standard American diet. But when I got on my own, it was like, you know, dollar store and fast food and 40 ounces of beer and packs of cigarettes when I could afford them and, and weed and nonstop. And long story short, you know, from 17 to 19, I just really went down south achy joints, uh, depression, uh, candida, chronic across my body, jock itch, toe fungus, all this really fun stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, my goal of becoming a professional skateboarder was slipping away. You know, I've been skateboarding since I was six years old. It was really my main motivating force for everything. And yeah, I was literally going to bed, not wanting to wake up the next day. And I could go even more into that, but it was just, I was in a very dark spot and I knew I needed something. And the first thing I found was a yoga VHS tape in Walmart's bulk bins. If anyone remembers those, they had the VHS bulk <laughs> bins, like two bucks for any, any VHS tape. Uh, and I, I took that home. I started practicing it a whole bunch. It was a Rodney E intermediate power yoga class. And it changed my life because it just got me to focus. It really connected me more with my body and my breath, but also it got me interested in yogic literature, which talked about karma and you know, abstaining from meat and all this stuff and diet in general. And I was just like, wow, like my mind was blown. I just thought this was a pleasure tube. I thought Taco Bell was like the height of nutrition and I'd like be my happiest when I'd eat huge amounts of Taco Bell. But, you know, I, I, I checked that out and uh, it led me to nutrition books. And the first big book I found was called Fit for Life. It was one of those moments where I went into a used bookstore looking at the nutrition wall of all these books. And one book was just like, Boo. I swear it was just like, that's the book. I grabbed it and uh, it may have not actually been shining, but my intuition was just like, boom, like this is it. Yeah. I got that book. I read it. I still recommend that book. Anyone who's interested in going in the direction of health and maybe isn't just ready to go 100% raw, this book lays it out from standard American all the way to high raw or raw foodist uh, and looks at it from a holistic perspective. So I read that, you know, the big things that jumped out to me was eating fruit first on an empty stomach food combining, letting go of animal products, you know, keeping it lower fat, um, you know, lots and lots of fruit as much as you want, really showcasing it as the optimal food. And I started taking that on. And to kind of shorten this a bit, over about a, almost a five-year period of time, 
I went from, you know, like eating junk food and, and extra large bacon, double cheeseburger pizzas every day when I could afford it to high raw vegan, you know, and I, I really first started by just having fruit for breakfast and noticing food combining and implementing that and progressively getting more fruit and or simple uh, vegetarian vegan meals throughout the day until a simple dinner. Eventually, I dropped all that other stuff and went high raw vegan, which at that time I was living in Vancouver, working at an organic uh, health food store and in the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition to become a registered holistic nutritionist. I'll briefly mention that all of this was really just for skateboarding. You know, at that time, you know, it was, it was skateboarding so I could heal faster and I could skateboard more. But it more and more started taking over the rest of my life and becoming just as big of a passion, especially when I really connected with veganism that totally blew open the doors to the compassionate reasons and all that other stuff. But even when I went into school, I, I was still doing it to better myself for skateboarding and the other reasons followed behind. In the middle of that schooling, that would have been in 2004, I met Dr. Doug Graham, who was at that time, you know, like a 28 year old, 28 year raw vegan and had been like a headline speaker at all the major raw festivals in the world. I'd read a few books on raw food. Uh, I knew I wanted to go that direction. I tried a little bit, but I couldn't maintain it. I was already high raw vegan at that point for about six months. And then Doug just simplified it. I went to every one of his talks and he literally glowed. I won't, I won't kid you, he was literally glowing. I used to have a, a history of using magic mushrooms and stuff like that and going out into nature and seeing auras and stuff. And he was the first person I saw that had a physical aura around him without me being under the influence of a plant medicine. And I was just like, everything is pointing me towards this guy. I'm going to check him out. I stayed after all of his talks, talked with him. He was really gracious with his time. I told him my dream to, was to become a professional skateboarder and was already high raw vegan, but how to do this. And he just laid it out, man. He just made it simple. The next day I went 100% raw. I remember walking down the street in Vancouver, going to the local grocery store to get food before going to the second day of the event and just crying because I was so open hearted and so connected with purpose that at that moment, I really realized that all of the stuff I was learning, all the stuff I was applying was what I was sent here for. And at that moment, really, that's when it shifted from just doing raw food for skateboarding to doing raw food as a profession before I didn't even consider it, even though I was in school. And so that was to me like a, a major Satori moment, a heart opening and a, a sense of connecting with purpose. And, you know, from there, really, I went back, I talked to Doug and I've stayed in touch with him since then. I've now written, you know, a book with him and done retreats with him and been on stage with him and stayed at his house, consider him a close friend and a mentor. And I've got to learn from a lot of other people throughout the years. But that was really when I went full on. It took me about five years to decide that uh, I was ready to promote it and live it as a coach. And I started my website, The Raw Advantage, and that's now been over 14 years, just full time living as a coach running retreats, speaking at festivals, writing recipe books, all the while skateboarding and more recently in the last two years, finally going pro. So, uh, you know, Congratulations. at 43, now I'm finally a pro and I, I'm getting my new board coming out at Christmas. Pretty excited for that. But uh, that brings us up to present date. Yeah, so not much then, not much, not much happened. <laughs> yeah, so I know so many people sing Doug Graham's praises, myself included, like his book, his book. Yeah the 80 10 10 diet like it's basically a bible in the raw food scene and yeah it's interesting what you say about the the glow around him i can't say i've ever experienced that but i can i can envision what you saw hmm. um yeah so just to give the people a little bit of context what weight are you currently sitting at and like what height are you 
So I'm six foot two or six foot 1.5, you know, that 0.5 is important when you're just about two, but, uh, and I'm about 175 pounds right now. And I find I fluctuate between, you know, the, the heaviest I've been as a raw vegan, uh, and really low body fat percentage was 198 pounds. And the lowest I've ever been at the end of a fast was like, I think it was around like 150. You know, so I'm kind of in the middle of there right now. Um, even just a few months ago, I was actually at 187 and felt pretty good there, but my skateboarding wasn't quite as good. It's just a little bit more weight on the joints and makes you feel a little yeah. bit less fluid. So I've kind of adapted my workout and uh, even my eating just a little bit for a period of time to come to what I feel is a more optimal weight for my skateboarding specifically. Yeah, I think that's important because for me as well, when I first started this journey, only maybe 10 months ago it was for it was similar to you it was for football it was for athletic performances when i yep. say football i mean like soccer for for most of the world but yeah, yeah it yeah. was for that for that sporting standpoint and it i think it really resonated with me in that regard so i i think that's important like you say using it as a tool to fuel your lifestyle yeah. and your goals so yeah one do you say 175? Here I can, I can, uh, yeah, I, I have my, my calculator right here. So 175 uh -huh. divided by 2.2, <laughs> like basically 79.5 or 80 kilograms. Yeah. That's still pretty big because a lot, a lot of people, they have this stereotype of raw vegans as being like skinny malnourished and they say yeah. you can't build muscle on the diet. So what would you say? What, what have you noticed? What have you observed? When do you, tend to gain weight on the diet and when when do you seem to be at your lowest now it may seem obvious to you but for many people they, they yeah. have these struggles myself included i'm currently experimenting with it and i'm seeing progress but i think it'd be yeah. insightful if you can share kind of your process absolutely now I, I want to share something really briefly before i go into that answer sure sure just because i think it is pertinent you know like if if I listened to the mainstream advice, even from like qualified nutritionists and naturopaths and doctors, I wouldn't be sitting here what I'm doing, what I'm doing. You know, like when I was in my first year of, uh, of uh, training to become a registered holistic nutritionist, that's when I went raw vegan and I was raw vegan for half of that year. And my one head teacher told me like, this is great that you're eating raw vegan. She was an Ayurvedist and really well knowledge and learned. And she said to me, you know, like, it's great. You're a raw foodist, but if you continue doing this within two years, you will die. She said fruits and vegetables are cleansing foods and animal foods and cooked foods are, are building foods. And if you just continue with those, you're just going to cleanse yourself to death. And, you know, obviously here I am nearly 20 years later and, you know, able to put yeah. on weight very easily. Um, and I've had numerous doctors and other, other people, you know, really second guess what I'm doing and, you know, fitness people tell me you need more protein and blah, 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 you know, and here I am living it, you know, doing it. And, you know, it's just important to note that it doesn't mean they're bad or that they're wrong from their knowledge and experience. It just means that everyone is only privy to their specific knowledge, education and personal experience. And maybe she's seen some raw Buddhists, which, you know, didn't eat enough calories, you know, which is very common. It's the most most common reason why people fall off the raw food diet is either under eating calories or not having proper education. And it's a combination of those two often, right? So through learning it and living it, you gain personal experience and from their wisdom, and that is different than knowledge, right? So 
Yeah. I, I can say, you know, the main difference between me being at 155 was, I mean, obviously I, I was fasting, you know, or actually one time I got hit by a truck and I couldn't move and I wasn't eating as much. So I went down to really close that to that weight, you know, being hospitalized yeah. and immobile for a few for months, sure. you know, but um, at my heaviest, that was actually also kind of piggybacking off of that. That was one year after my accident, uh, getting hit by a truck on my motorcycle because I was basically put into a full-time rehab program where I was like in the gym six hours a day, six days a week. Uh, and wow. at first it wasn't really muscle building. It was really restructuring my firing pattern and also getting certain muscle groups that had turned off due to the accident. Like I ripped my quad tendon in half and like my, my leg was literally uh, on the doctor's report said mutilated left leg. And so it took like six months of working out where I was just really toning and rebalancing and sure building a little bit because I got to such a low, but it wasn't focused on muscle building, you know, but once I got yeah. to a certain point there, I had like six months of straight intensive, actually a little more than that. After about eight months after the accident, I had nearly, nearly a year. No, sorry. I apologize. It was actually one year after the accident. Cause I went to the UK fruit festival. It was a year after the accident that I had built up with that, intensive six day a week training for like six, seven months. And then my own training, at like almost as a bodybuilder until that festival the next year. And I was able to go within that year period of time from 155 ish up to 198 pounds. And wow. that's a, that's a big difference. And obviously because mm -hmm. I was already at like 185 before that, and then I lost so much weight due to the accident, that first amount was a little easier to gain, but even going mm -hmm. from 185 to exactly the muscle memory but even going from the 185 to like 200 pounds within you know six weeks of or six months of like really intensive muscle training that's it's no small feat it's on the upper edges of what the textbooks kind of say you can do you know and all of this just from eating until i really don't want like almost the, the sticking the fork in you kind of technique right where it's like every meal eating all i can and a couple bites more always erroring on more rather than less and training really hard in a specific manner to build muscle because at that time i couldn't really skateboard i mean skateboarding is the love of my life but i couldn't skateboard at the level i wanted to so i was still progressively getting a little better at skateboarding but i was like i'm going to run this test i'm going to push myself as hard as i can in the gym and i'm going to grow as fast as much as i could and i, I proved to myself that it wasn't only easy to do at least in comparison to what people would say it should be on a raw food diet. Um, mm. But it was relatively enjoyable. And I learned a lot from that process. And uh, yeah, the results, they to me, they spoke for themselves. So it was, it was quite easy. And I didn't have to concentrate on extra protein. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's opened a whole can of worms. There's so many questions that are <laughs> running through my mind. But yeah, I think just from personal experience, like you said, at the very start, about most people actually under eat. And I, yeah. yeah, it's true from fir first-hand experience. Sometimes you have to experience it yourself to actually, you know, know what people are talking about. Because I read it in the eighty ten ten diet, but it was only I kind of got swept in the, uh, you could call it breatharian cult or not cult, but you know the the real. I got caught up with uh, ideals and and living off of prana yeah. and less and less. And I think it's it's just quite important that people realize that that may be suitable for some people but 
if you're really struggling, it's probably like Chris says, because you're actually under eating and depriving yourself and trying to go too fast too soon in maybe a direction you, you don't actually know where it leads, you know? So that's just from personal Absolutely. experience. But just, just on what you touched on um, about eating more, I've, I've experienced that myself as well because fruit meals especially can make you feel really full. But then yeah. later on, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm hungry again. So a lot of people... Yeah. A lot of people don't eat enough, like you say. But I'm just wondering, roughly, for the, the more scientific people or the people who prefer, like, numbers, roughly how many calories on, like, chronometer or something like that do you consume now on a day-to-day, -day, on an average? Yeah, you know, on an average, and I, I don't really calculate it every single day by any means. Yeah. I don't obsess about numbers. Like, I, at a certain period of time, I did learn about it. And just to also mention from kind of what you experienced as well, like, I had the same thing. In my first eight months as a raw foodist, although I knew I knew a lot, I didn't fully understand caloric density and how, for example, like I could get all my calories met from, say, just arbitrarily 30 bananas like the, the old site. Um, but I'd be needing like double the volume of watermelon. You know, I'd, like instead of eight pounds of bananas, I'd be needing like 21 pounds of watermelon to get the yeah. same amount of calories. And I'd need like 36 heads of lettuce or something like that. No, it was like 60 heads of lettuce. If I was yeah, just getting great. it from lettuce, you know, which is impossible. You can't really do it. Yeah. Um, you know, but myself, typically I eat probably right around the 2,750 mark, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 is what I often say. And on a busy day, I'm easily eating more than that. You know, I've, I've eaten up to 6,500 calories in a day when I had like a really busy week where I was just blowing through calories. <laughs> and the interesting thing to say about all that though, is when you create the demand through exercise, which I recommend people do when they're eating their biggest sweet meal of the day, if they're eating a huge, huge meal of bananas, get some movement before, it only improves the insulin function and the, the muscle's receptivity to absorb those uh, simple sugars and turn it into glycogen in your muscle stores. Yeah. But when you're creating the demand and when you're moving, more calories becomes not only enjoyable, but easier to eat and it just feels appropriate. So if I just tried to eat 6,500 calories today, I'd feel sick. Like I'd feel this is gross. Like I'm not moving that much. But in the time when I ate that much, I was so active and creating so much demand that those smoothies went down easy. And like, it was like, it felt completely appropriate. And, and for me, that's like, you know, I, I again, I could say that I'm 2,500 to 3000 calories, but for someone else who's maybe, you know, like five foot 10 and 135 pounds, they might find that 2000 to 2,500 calories is perfect. And, you know, as a coach, I've helped a lot of people find their basic uh, caloric needs and a really, really easy calculation for that is you take your ideal weight and in pounds, ideal weight in pounds, you times that by 10. So let's just say for ease, ease that uh, someone's 150 pounds as their ideal weight. You know, maybe they're not even there yet, but that's where they want to be. You take that, you times it by 10. So that ends up being 1,500. You add 500 calories on top of that for a basic level of not inactivity, but not rigorous activity. Um, that being because that uh, ideal weight times 10 matches your basal metabolic rate. So what that means, that's the weight that if you got that amount of calories, you could maintain that weight if you just laid in bed all day and didn't do anything at all. So mm -hmm. 500 calories on top of that is just for like a, a basic, um, pretty low activity person. But if you're going to add a lot of activity onto that, well, then you can roughly calculate your activity needs and, and add that on top of there, right? So for me, yeah. that just shows that 
you know, I'm my basal metabolic rate right now is around like 170 or 1,750 calories, but I'm adding on top of that on average, a thousand calories because I live a moderately active life. And sometimes when I'm more active, like a couple of days a week, when I skate two hours and I'm going pretty hard, well, sure. I'm going to add another 500, 600 calories on top of that, maybe more. So, uh, I hope that kind of answers that question and, and yeah. simplifies it a bit too. For sure. For sure. That's, that's very useful for me and I'm sure for the audience as well, because there's a couple of things you touched on there that are brilliant. Like the exercise, it sounds really obvious, but especially at the start of your journey, raw journey, you may not feel the need to exercise maybe mm -hmm. as you're transitioning or whatever. But for me personally, when I stopped exercising one, I obviously didn't need to eat as much. It makes sense, but yeah. I didn't. And I was like, how, how do people eat such big meals? But like Chris says, mm -hmm. when you create the demand, the body's so smart, it knows how to adapt. So it becomes more enjoyable as well. Like you say, you actually enjoy your meal. You feel like you've earned your meal. And yeah. the insulin, um, what was the term you used? The insulin function just becomes even more sharp and receptive. You know, yeah. it's, uh, it's just amazing. Our physiology is designed in such a way where all this stuff is a lot simpler than people want to make it. Right. And it's like, I, I don't recommend forcing food, you know, and I also don't recommend forcing eating less food. You know, it really just comes down to finding that balance between all you can possibly enjoy. And for most people with most people's goals, a few bites more because most people want to gain a little bit of muscle mass or look a little bit better, or they want to have high levels of energy and knowing, like you said, that fruit is so damn satiating. It's really easy to eat just a little less than you think you need. And predictably what I see people do is they eat a little less than they require. And within, you know, they can manage that. They can feel all right with that. But after about a week and a half, two weeks, well, you know, a couple hundred calories a day after two weeks, you end up in a full day's deficit of calories. And that's when yeah. the binge cycle starts. That's when looking at other food starts. That's when second guessing ourselves starts. And I'd like to briefly mention too, there's a big reason for this because fruits and vegetables are really high in volume. They're high in nutrition per calorie, but they're low calorie per volume, right? So our three basic needs for satiation are going to be volume, nutrition, and calories. All the other food out there is really low in volume, low in nutrition per calorie, but really high calorie. So most yeah. people on most diets, they have way too easy of a time getting excess calories, but they're always hungry and they're always looking to snack and eat more stuff. Whereas on a raw food diet, you're meeting two of those three needs very easily, volume and nutrition, but it's harder to get enough calories. And so it leads to people feeling totally satisfied, but slightly under eating calories. And I just always like to promote that this is a diet of abundance, especially if you want to be physical in this world. Um, if you want to look better next year than you did this year, if you want to improve your athletic performance, and if you want to get enough nutrition to be optimally nourished, you know, uh, Doug Graham really promotes, and I, I feel the exact same way that we cannot hope to be optimally nourished unless we have at least a baseline of some activity because all living beings are designed to be active and fit. You know, we're no exception. And by being active and fit, you require more calories, which also means more total nutrition, right? So if we're inactive, we're getting less protein, less amino acid, like we're getting less of everything, right? So yeah, just wanted to piggyback yeah. that on top of this topic. For sure. That's very valuable. I think, yeah, the calories per bite concept, I think Doug Graham calls it, is really important, mm -hmm. especially like you say, as an athlete, when you're active and the body is designed to move, like you say. It's um, 
a lot of times people they put too much emphasis on food especially when they're mm. at the start of this and they forget the whole holistic health picture body mind you know the exercise the food just everything too many to name off the top of my head now but yeah, yeah. It's, it's a whole holistic picture there was something you touched on earlier about uh, fasting and eating less and things like that. Mm -hmm. If people maybe enjoy the practice of fasting, I had a question earlier from, from a friend. She was asking, can she still build muscle whilst fasting or at least intermittent fasting and like water fasting? Is it possible? Because obviously they might want the benefits of like autophagy, they might say, by like mm -hmm. the, the mainstream kind of terms. Uh, is it possible to build muscle whilst experimenting with fasting without putting the body in like a catabolic state where it's kind of breaking down? It's a it's definitely an interesting question. And I can't say that I'm an expert on fasting. I've definitely talked with a lot of different fasting practitioners. I've undergone numerous fasts myself. And I have talked to some people like Dr. Graham on this exact subject. Um, you know, he says that it's physiologically impossible to grow muscle while on a calorie deficit um, or specifically when you're fasting too. And, you know, what you can do though, is you can be burning through fat tissue and, uh, reducing your overall, uh, body fat percentage, which will make you look more ripped and maybe make you look in yeah. some ways a little bit more muscular. You know, it's, it's really interesting. Cause you know, like I'm at one, 175 ish right now. And when I'm at 185, I mean, that, that's a fair amount of weight, you know, like four and 4.2 kilos or something, 4.5 kilos, but I don't look a lot different. You know, um, mm. you know, when you when you lose a bit of extra body fat, because uh, I lost a little bit of body fat in that is definitely not a lot of muscle, but you, you don't really seem like you're a lot smaller, you know, because you still have that tone and things pop out a little yeah. bit more. Right. The leanness, and so yeah. during exactly that leanness. So, I mean, when people are talking about fasting, I, I'm a big proponent of equating that to rest and you know, if you're fasting, I wouldn't really recommend working out while you're fasting. I'd recommend fasting while you're fasting and abstaining from exercise and getting full rest. Uh, you know, to me, the purpose of fasting really is to direct all the body's attention on the catabolization and the rebuilding, right? And like breaking stuff down, getting the usable parts that can be recycled, uh, clearing out old wastes and all that kind of stuff. But if instead you're also working out at that same time, well, you're, you're not going to do either very effectively. If you're wanting to build, you're much more, uh, much going to be much more successful if you're at least eating the caloric needs that you have while you're exercising, because then you're going to be still burning and at the same time providing everything your body needs to be able to build. You know, it's, um, yeah. And I don't know if that helps a little bit, but yeah, for sure. I think that's that's very important. It makes complete sense now that you've said it, but just kind of rest while you're fasting. So if someone was to maybe fast one day a week, maybe their rest day at the weekend, do you think that wouldn't have any kind of major impact on their physique or athletic performance? Well, you know, the interesting thing about this, whether we're talking about intermittent fasting or we're talking about periodic fasting, like you said, one day a week, because the most common reason that people fall off the lifestyle is under eating calories, doing either of those practices makes it even harder. Because if you're, if you're predictably having one day a week where you're not eating at all, well, that's, you know, mm -hmm. for me, for example, that's like say 3000 calories a week that I'm under eating for my total needs. And, you know, yeah. we can look predictably at the month or the year for someone's caloric needs and, and they're 
pretty consistent based on someone's athleticism and their weights. So, you know, to me, it's uh, unless somebody has a lot of weight to lose, you know, it's not really advantageous. I mean, in that scenario, as long as they're not trying to deprive themselves and they're not always hungry and like having hard cravings and stuff like that. Sure. Absolutely. Mm. You can do that. But if you're somebody who's looking to add on a little bit of muscle or you're looking to improve your physique and stuff like that, then I, I don't really see that as a, a great way about of doing it, you know? So it's going to depend yeah. on the individual and the individual goals. But to me, um, you know, periodic fasting or intermittent fasting makes more sense for people that are eating foods that are really high in caloric density. In fact, that's what they're usually utilized for is people are eating foods that are a little bit overwhelming to their system and that they overeat habitually. So by having one day off a week, they can actually come closer to their needs and not be consistently putting on weight. Whereas on a raw food diet, it's already really, really light and simple for the body. It's really clean food. Um, it's not like we really need to detox from that, like in an accelerated rate, it's already fostering healthy levels and speeds of detoxification in our body. And, uh, you know, kind of actually what we were mentioning kind of before, I really think that the mindset of this being a marathon rather than a race brings more balance and ease and less frustration and, and chance of yo-yo type behavior uh, within this kind of, uh, you know, dietary plan. Yeah, for sure. There's so many things to dissect there. The first on my mind is just the fact that a lot of people tend to apply rules, like you say, for like the standard American diet. So this lifestyle, mm -hmm. and that's kind of when they're not getting the most out of it because like you said, it's already such a clean diet, high vibe, high energy foods. You're not really having to fast from their negative impact as you would on like a standard American diet. But also something that came into my mind, people might be thinking, they might keep here, like keep listening to the word calories and they might be thinking, I'm not sure if I really believe in the calorie model, like how they burn, I'm not sure how they do it exactly, but they burn like a substance externally. I'm sure you know more about it yep. than me, but, but how do you feel about calories? And also, do you feel like your digestion becomes more efficient you, you need less calories as you progress on your journey? Yeah, I think those are all really great questions. And, you know, the calorie model isn't perfect, but it's definitely the closest thing we have. And it's, it's really predictable too, that if somebody eats enough to maintain their weight, you know, based on that general model that I gave you, then they're predictably going to stay at a pretty steady weight. If they, if they take off 500 calories every day and they eat that consistently without short binge periods because a lot of times people will say like i only eat this much but they either don't know the amount of calories they're eating or one day every couple of weeks they end up eating a big bag of nuts or something like that i've seen it a lot i'm not saying every single person i've just i've seen that a lot firsthand and um it's predictable if you eat more consistently you gain weight right so it, again it's not completely perfect but part of the reason for that is that no two pieces of food are identical right so now, that's one of the beautiful things about the raw food diet. You know, people go to McDonald's around the world and they get the exact same hamburger every single time. Whereas yeah. every single banana, every single mango, like it's, it's going to be different, even from the same tree, you know, from year to year, you know, from batch to batch. Right. So um, while again, I don't think it's totally perfect. I think it's the best model we have. And one mango of the same size compared to another could be like, you know, 15 percent different difference in calories, you know, maybe even more dependent upon the soil and 
you know, all the other factors that go into growing it, right? So it's not completely comparing apples to apples. Um, uh, the last part of your question there, though, could you remind me of? Yeah, sure. It was about digestion. And yes, I'm personally yeah. interested in your journey. If you feel like now your digestion's improved and maybe you require less calories. Yeah, that is a really good, good question, too. And yes, definitely, if your digestion improves, let's say after a fast, you know, your, your digestion can improve to a point, especially if you come off the fast in a, a, a streamlined way, we'll say, yeah, yeah, because oftentimes, actually, the hardest thing about a fast is the refeed. And if we overwhelm our system, well, we can, I wouldn't say undo, but it, we can definitely hinder our digestive capacity and, and uh, diminish some of the benefits of the fast, right? So if yeah. we come off of it in a slow and, uh, you know, streamlined way, we can have improved digestion and be able to get more from the same amount of food, you know? So yes, um, in my coaching practice, in my, you know, um, talking with other people who've been doing this and coaching people, you know, athletes and, you know, a whole bunch of people for decades and decades, that number is often exaggerated from my perspective and my education um yes we can improve it but not like cutting our calories in half for example as some people like to try and promote uh i've never mm -hmm. seen this again people who are long-term promoting this and helping you know who are also fasting practitioners and helping athletes and really on the pulse and not trying to make exaggerated claims they don't see this they never see this um you know so to me we're talking about single digits single digit percentage points at the most low 10 to 15%, you know, something around there. That's just an arbitrary ballpark, you know, but it's not going to be so significant. You know, what I see more often is people becoming a little bit more spiritually bent, being a little bit more streamlined in their activities, doing repetitive activities, which also the body gets adapted to them and requires less energy for those. They get a little bit less you know, anxious and uh, back and forth in their mind, a little bit more calm. And all of yeah. those things promote a little bit less calories. So maybe they eat a little less calories than they did when they were stressed out and, and you know, running around like a hamster trying to be extra active, but they've come to a little bit more physical, mental, spiritual peace. And sure, maybe they're eating 15, 20% less calories, but um, I think it's a compounded issue, not just the digestion improving. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really great point and good distinction to make just about how many factors there are. It's not just the food, mm -hmm. like you said, it's the lifestyle, the mental state, because that can really impact your digestion. You know, if you're stressed out yeah. when you're eating, you're going to feel like crap, you know, and you're not going to absorb anything. And yeah, it's, it's bad. It's bad. But I think it's good. This is why I love especially interviewing long-term people people who maybe people could say are role models or they've just been doing it a while they stand the test of time because it's one mm. thing to be breatharian for like a year or something but like you say they might have reduced their exercise they might have maybe improved their mental state a little bit but to sustain that for for years and years is quite you know i don't want to be a guinea pig i'd rather follow the proven steps in every area of my yeah. life, you know, I think it's important people have role models and long-term people who've been doing it years, like yourself and Dr. Doug Graham, he's been doing it, what, 45 years now? Yeah, I think around 45 years. And, and the thing that I like around that too is like, 
you know, when I talk to Doug, I'm not just talking to Doug, you know, I, I'm talking to thousands and thousands of people that he has experienced applying this and helping people with throughout his, his career. Right. Yeah. So it's like, you know, to me, that just brings extra weight to it. And when you see the same things predictably happen again and again and again with different applications of the lifestyle and different philosophies around how to do it, to me, it paints a really, really clear picture for at the very least the generalized outcome of all these different ways of applying it. Yeah, I think those repeatable results are so important because it's one thing, maybe one man, one yogi achieving this mm. enlightened state and able to be buried alive or something. But for that maybe average Joe, they're probably thinking that's way too extreme for me. And yeah, yeah they need clear steps. And for, for me personally, I think that's really important. And another thing I wanted to touch on is very it's a really like common buzzword and topic it's just about supplementation especially mm. B12 because I know you experienced certain B12 deficiencies during your journey so could you share a bit of light on your views on supplementation and your personal experience yeah, absolutely so when I first got into raw food you know I guess I could back up a bit before that before I got into raw food when I was in health kind of the health uh, aim, I was taking some supplements, not a lot, but some supplements. Um, and when I first really got into raw food, I came in through the door of natural hygiene, you know, and, you know, from Doug to Herbert Shelton to TC Fry to another Graham and Sylvester Graham and some others. And, <laughs> you know, a lot of that was really anti-supplement and really kind of black and white. And, you know, like, even I remember reading one of the books, it's like, the intelligent man would do this. And it's like, oh, so if you don't do that, you're not intelligent. You know, it's like, it's so, it's so kind of crispy, right? And, and, and I really took that on full force. I just felt like, yeah, of course, like this is the answer, raw food. And why would I need anything else outside of that? And, you know, the doctors have lied to me for this. So obviously they're lying about this. And, you know, and I, I just, I took that full on. And I'll even admit, I even had some pride in being supplement free, like that if I had supplements, that it would be a failure or that it disproved the diet somehow. And at about year six of being raw, my parents, they weren't concerned, but they were interested to see and they recommended I go get blood tests with my family doctor. So I went and I got like a full comprehensive panel and urine test. And, you know, he told me like, uh, like asked me about my diet and stuff like that. And he told me he was a little concerned, but then he called me, I believe it was around 10 days later. He's like, can you come in for the results? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I came in and he had a huge smile. And he's like, you know what? You changed someone's mind today. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, these are the best results I've seen in my career. Like I, I thought wow. that you would need extra protein, extra calcium, vitamin D, like, you know, a whole list of things. And he's like, everything was spot on. Um, if this would have been like five months ago, I would have thought maybe your cholesterol was too low, but I just went to a revised uh, symposium specifically on cholesterol. And your cholesterol is like that of a baby, like perfect, you know, and like, Wow. And he did say, though, the only thing is that your B12 is a little low and your D is a little low, but nothing to be concerned about, but something we should look at. So okay. over over that was year six from year six to year 10, I had, I believe, three other yeah, two or three other full blood pet tests. And again, everything looked good. Everything made so stable. Um, I'm not someone who thinks that everyone needs blood tests all the time, but as a practitioner and also because I hadn't seen many people doing blood work at that time, because this is now 
you know, that was like 15 years, 14 yeah. years ago, right? Um, everything looked good. And to me, the value of blood tests is multiple tests over months and years. So you can see trends, you can see like, Oh, well, yeah, my protein yeah. was great then, but on year eight, it was all of a sudden way down, but that didn't happen. It's, it's been stable. And the only thing that wasn't stable was my B12 and my D did fluctuate dependent upon the time of year. I did my test, you know, in the middle of winter, it's going to be a little lower in the middle of summer is more than adequate, but the B12 steadily got lower and lower to a point where I was symptomatic. Um, little teeny things were stressing me out. Like, you know, my computer did something wrong and I'd be like screaming at my computer and that was not me. Um, I started having back pain, but at the same time I, I, I have, I fractured my back too. So I can't say it was specifically B12, but it started hurting more and that can be a symptom. Um, and, and I was clinically deficient. Like I was at the range where I remember telling another long-term raw vegan, uh, Don Bennett, uh, about my levels. And he's like, come to my room right now and get supplements. Like he was like really concerned with how low my levels were. And yeah. anyway, from that, I made the decision to supplement and I got two rounds of uh, injection B12. And then from there, I tried a number of different things over the years, sublinguals, uh, patches, stuff like that. Nowadays, I do still do a sublingual. Uh, my levels have come up. My symptoms had gone away. And over the years being at festivals, because I think I've been to over 15 festivals and run like 12 retreats and you know, uh, been to other retreats and stuff like that, but meeting so many people, cause some of those festivals have like 600 people, right. And traveling the world mm -hmm. and meeting other people. I've seen more, more than a handful. It doesn't sound like a lot, but more than a handful of people who have specifically went too far with that and didn't supplement and really regret it. Cause they have long-term irreversible nerve damage, you know, and they, they don't have the coordination they had before. They have some memory issues. Um, they have still have tingling in their fingers and their feet. Those are some of the major symptoms that they started to get. And when you start to really get much past like tingling in your, your fingers, your extremities and your toes and stuff like that, uh, if you don't get it addressed, that's where permanent nerve damage can occur and it, it doesn't seemingly come back. Right. So, yeah. um, all this to say, like, I'm not anti supplement. If we're eating a well-balanced, well-rounded raw food diet and have a healthy lifestyle, the minimal supplementation is required. The only one that I personally um, recommend at the very least getting tested, you know, every couple of years just to see and pay attention to symptoms to is B12, uh, yeah. you know, and I, I have taken vitamin D in some winters and stuff like that, but I prefer a, a vitamin D light or charged mushrooms uh, over the supplement. But I think there can be a time and a place and uh, paying attention to symptoms and you know, talking with others who have some experience and otherwise doing some lab work can really be beneficial and prevent uh, issues long term. Yeah, yeah, especially for peace of mind as well, because even for some people, I know just having the peace of mind of just supplementing, it's not yeah. the worst thing in the world. But would you say like, if you so if you obviously if you start experiencing symptoms, then definitely get your blood work checked, etc. But if people are feeling fine on the diet and the lifestyle and, you know, they're not experiencing any symptoms, what would you say? Just carry on doing what you're doing or still get tested anyway? You know, I, I think that just comes down to the individual and what their preference is. You know, some people have the strong preference of, uh, you know, doing something preventatively and other people do it retroactively. Um, and, and I think that's a personal thing. You know, someone definitely could argue that with something that is pretty predictable and 
has the widest consensus among most people within the vegan and raw movement that B12 is a, a long-standing, uh, not issue, but something to really be aware of that, you know, preemptively supplementing, you know, it's like, what is it? I think it's like 15 bucks a year to supplement and there's no side effects known to supplementation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, again, I just think that becomes a personal, personal kind of thing really. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cause I know Doug, I can't remember exactly what he said in his book, but I know his views were obviously like, don't, if you're, if you're really like declining in that, obviously don't be afraid to supplement. But does Doug, do you know if Doug personally supplements? I know he had to at one point in his life and he hasn't since then. And it's been a long period of time. And there definitely yeah. are a number of people who recommend that, or maybe don't recommend, but say that, uh, you know, as a raw foodist, as you're not taking in, uh, you know, supplemental B12 or you're not uh, getting in inadvertently supplemental B12 because it's put in a lot of uh, processed foods and, you know, most animals actually the, largest consumer B12 supplementation is the egg industry and, and animals because they supplement them B12. Uh, if you're not getting it that way too, that over time you can get lower and lower and bottom out until your body becomes more efficient through, uh, you know, digestion and uh, utilization that you can then from there come to a new appropriate level, which may be different than what the mainstream doctors say is an appropriate level of B12 because of, you know, the realities around supplementation, and all those other things. Um, that said, and, you know, like I, I, I always, always value everything Doug says, you know, he has a wide, wide range of experience. I just also have to consider my own personal experience and intuition and what I've seen. And to me, it's not worth the risk. You know, like I don't need to have pride around not supplementing. I'd rather not risk having neurological damage that is permanent and having seen people get that from trying to maintain that model. It, to me, it's just like why why risk it you know that's just that's just where i come from personally um, yeah yeah i don't think it has yes. to be a point of pride and i also think that uh you know it, it's not a failing of the diet or lifestyle in any way shape or form if if we were living closer to nature and we weren't obsessed about hygiene and cleaning ourselves and cleaning our hands and cleaning all of our food and you know we we're drinking from natural streams that weren't polluted you know back further back in time and we didn't have, you know, like toiletries and toilet paper and hygiene, you know, we'd, we'd accidentally wipe our butt a little bit and maybe touch our food and B12 would be there and we'd be eating food from the tree, not washing it all the time. B12 would be there and B12 yeah. would naturally be in the water. So to me, it's just a, a reality of modern day living rather than a failing of the lifestyle. Yeah, for sure. Because not everyone can grow their food. And like you said, the soils nowadays with our modern living, there's a lot of beneficial technology and and developments but yeah we have sacrificed certain things in the natural world absolutely you know? especially even just living in colder climates uh you and i both you, you live in sweden i believe and i'm yep. in the uk at yep. the minute um it, it a lot of people do say they struggle with this lifestyle in the colder mm -hmm. climates for me personally i do a little bit in terms of the weather but for, in terms of the food i haven't noticed too much of a struggle recently i feel like i'm coping but do you have any tips mm. for people who are living in a colder climate i heard you mention there about the vitamin d uh lights is that the red light yep. therapy device 
Or is that's that a little different. different. The, the, the red light therapy is more for boosting mitochondrial function, uh, improving blood flow and kind of just feeling good and healing. It's also good for scar tissue on the skin, promotes collagen production okay. and all that kind of good stuff. So, um, but the, the vitamin D lamp instead, that is specifically uh, UVB and C, I believe, uh, maybe it's UVB, but it, it's, it's the spectrum responsible for vitamin D production in the skin. And it's just okay. short bursts, you know, like three, three minutes a day, a couple days a week is all I need during the winter months to naturally okay. produce the vitamin D3 in my skin. Uh, they are a little bit pricey, you know, I mean, it's cheaper to supplement. I just over years of occasionally supplementing and then knowing that I'm living uh, in a, a darker and colder climate, I, I just decided to get a vitamin D lamp with that. Yeah. Yeah, sounds like a good investment. So in terms of the food, maybe like securing produce, which foods are like staples for you? What kind mm -hmm. of tips do you have for people living in a colder climate? Just maybe touch on a few of those points. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I even with Ted Carr, uh, we actually even wrote a little book all on that, you know, it's a, and I can yeah, go yeah, into I love the Ted. main points in it, no problem at all. So it's, it's on my website for like five bucks. And I, I actually, I think Ted might be even just giving it away free because he kind of does that. But uh, so you could probably find it with him. But, you know, the first thing I'd like to say about that is it's very common in the first year, two years of a raw food diet for it to be a little bit cooler and a little bit harder in the winter. I don't know the actual 100% specifics for that, but what my intuition and my education leans me to is that one, it takes a little bit, a little bit for the body to get used to a slightly lower body temperature. Most people on a raw diet, they're sitting a couple of points, like 0.2 or 0.3, I can't remember. It's a, a couple points cooler because one, they have a higher level of hydration and more water in the body requires more energy to heat. Um, two, yeah. most people in the first months and even year of a raw food diet are slightly under eating and they're burning body fat to make up for that, which again, leads us to being a little cooler. Uh, and three, we're eating less, uh, digestion intensive foods and digestion actually does create thermal heat in the body. So like if you're yeah. you know, eating warm and hard to digest foods, you just feel warmer. So all of that lends us to naturally feeling a little bit cooler in our body, which it is actually advantageous in the summer, but in the winter, it takes a little bit of time to get used to. Beyond that, I do think there's also a, a aspect of circulation and circulation improving on this lifestyle over time. But what I can say from all this kind of ramble is that most people have a little bit harder time in their first winter or two. And then as they balance within the lifestyle, get used to it. Also just go through a few seasons and the produce availability and all those different things, um, they start to have an easier and easier time to build to the point where it's like, it isn't really much different. And if anything, my first tip there is that they just learn, okay, well, I put a little bit more bedding on my bed. I, I turn up the temperature in my house, maybe a teeny little bit. Um, I wear more appropriate clothing, like in those first year or two, yeah, maybe you want to be putting on double socks or maybe you want to put on long johns if you're cold. You know, that's an easier solution than, uh, you know, trying to double down on like 10 mm -hmm. times the fat or something. Right. So so those are some big tips is just, you know, warm up a little bit uh, the, the place you're going to be in, uh, dress appropriately, uh, exercise creates more muscle mass, which creates more heat. And also the exercise itself, of course, raises your core temperature. That's the yeah. the best way to feel warmer. 
um, eat big, you know, that's, that's one thing too, again, kind of that abundance mindset. And, uh, you know, sometimes more dense foods can feel a little bit warmer too. So whether that's, you know, bananas in the winter, persimmons, date meals, yeah. uh, when I was working outside, cause I used to work outside in minus 40 weather, that was the last job I had before I uh, started as a coach, I was working, building apartment buildings in minus 30 to 45 weather. Wow. I would bring a liter of hot Daterade. So just hot water, like not <laughs> quite boiling, but close to boiling, blended with as much dates as I required and, you know, put it in a thermos. And then when I was really cold, I would sip and drink my hot date drink. And it's like, I think sometimes people think that when you're a raw foodist, that warm foods are taboo or like you can't have tea or you, you know, you, you could never put your food on the stove and just gently warm it, not to boiling, but just gently like, you can do all those things. There is no rule book. You know, it just comes down to what makes you feel good. What makes this easier for you? What you feel personally comfortable with. Um, anyone who thinks that that kicks you out of the club, that's the club of one in their mind. You know, it's uh, up to us to define what our parameters are and what makes this easier for us and what sends us on more of like a binge kind of thought mentality thing. And that could be different for everyone, but you know, things like that have really, really helped me. And uh, I sometimes actually also like I, I don't drink tea, to be honest, like unless someone serves it to me. Yeah. But I do occasionally make tea daterades. So like I'll get a caffeine free chai tea and make the tea and then blend dates into it. And that'll be my lunch. And it's like warm and comforting and nice. And yeah. uh, I might do that on an extra cold day or if I've been out and I've you know just been playing outside and I come back in like, oh, I'm a little cold. Okay, I'll have this date hot tea daterade, right? And um, you could also swap the tea out for carob powder or cacao if you use that and make like a hot chocolate. You know, you could even put dehydrated bananas in that for mushroom or for uh, marshmallows, you know, but <laughs> yeah. all these different things make it a lot easier. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think like you say, just the parameters as well, because we often set ourselves parameters and then we kind of forget why we've set them. Ultimately, you want to mm -hmm. do what feels best for you and what's healthiest for you. For me personally, that's my approach. So I think, yeah just not being so rigid and putting ourselves in a box and like, Oh, I can't, I can't heat it slightly. Like where you, you sat there shivering, you know, I think not beating yeah. yourself up. If you breach these parameters that you've created mentally is really important. So on dates, I haven't eaten dates in a while actually, but what do you do with them? Do you tend to rehydrate them or like blend them into like smoothies? Cause for me, they, they feel quite sticky. They feel quite, low in water content absolutely yeah they definitely are and if you just make a meal of dates as is in their dried state is you could do it but it's definitely going to be heavier on your on your digestion you're going to feel it uh, you may get some gas from it uh, and it's also notoriously poor for your teeth in fact i've coached yeah. and known multiple multiple people who have run into major tooth issues not because of the raw diet because they were consistently snacking on dates and didn't have a great oral hygiene plan, you know? So mm. um, that's definitely something to look out for. I'd say probably 90% of the time when I eat dates, I blend them with water into a smoothie. It's, it's one of my favorite smoothies, even just dates and water. But again, all the other combos I've mentioned or dates and water with a cup of frozen blueberries. Amazing. Mm. And this actually kind of goes back to what we're talking about with cal caloric density. And something I did want to mention as well is, my first eight months of the diet, I didn't understand caloric density. I kind of mentioned that, but it led me to go to such a low body weight that I started having joint pains and uh, hard cravings and all this other stuff. And like, I was just 
looking too skinny and people started to think like, oh, you don't look healthy. And then when I understood caloric density and I started adding in more bananas and more meals with dates and stuff like that, I was able to maintain and grow my weight, you know? So uh, I think that's important, but I can exemplify it by saying like, when I'm eating a, a two liter banana smoothie, which for me, two liters wow. is very appropriate for a lot of people, maybe one liters, maybe one and a half. Um, it took me quite a while to get to where two liters was totally comfortable and really easy. But if I have a two liter banana smoothie, that might be about 18 bananas, which is pretty common for me and about 18, roughly 1800 calories. Right. And yeah. I'll often have that for lunch because I usually just have two big meals. If instead I have a, uh, a date meal, I might do about a pound of dates, which is a little less like 1650, 1700 calories. And I'll blend that with about a liter of water. And it ends up being about 1.15 liters, like, or like at the most 1.5 liters. And, you know, I could add in a couple extra handfuls of dates and still have the same amount of calories, but with a half a liter less volume. So sometimes when I'm really active, uh, I prefer a date smoothie because I can fit that in even easier. And if I want, I could even throw in two or three bananas on top of that and have like 2,200, 2,300 calories still in my two liter smoothie. Right. So, um, that's how I like to make dates, but other ways that I really enjoy dates are pressed into celery sticks. Um, and they just become like a sweet celery snack and that helps to add more water content and more fiber, which slows the digestion, uh, a savory sweet snack, really fun for travel. Uh, when I'm on airplanes, I know I mentioned that before, but even just road trips, I like those, um, apples. I don't make meals of apples, but if I make candy apples in season, that's something that's really good. Just pressing dates around the outside and, you know, press three or four dates onto every single apple and four apples. You have a big meal. It's it's really filling and really satiating. And having the celery or the apple at the end of the date meal, like a couple bites helps clean your teeth as well. So it's kind of beneficial that way. Yeah. Um, I even, I even have a mean baklava recipe that uses dates. Oh, and... the Greek, the Greek cakes. Yeah. My family yeah, used to always buy them. Yeah. They're so good, man. It's so good. And it sounds oversimplistic and ridiculous, but if you just mash or slightly blend some dates with water to make like a paste, you add some cinnamon. And optionally, you add a little bit of crushed walnuts. It's not the best combo, but I'm talking like a very small amount of walnuts crushed in there. And then you just layer that in between iceberg lettuce leaves, which sounds ridiculous. But you literally just layer it between iceberg lettuce leaves until you have like a stack. And it honestly tastes like juicy baklava. I, I didn't mention you add a bit of cinnamon and a little bit of uh, clove to the, the ah. date paste mix. And it's just like okay. mind blowing. So delicious. Oh, okay, I'll tell my mum because uh, she's got Greek family and they used to love those cakes, but they're so fattening and, you know, they're, they're, they they're not the most nutritious, but I'm sure for her, especially transitioning to raw, that'll be a good good little recipe. Yeah, so there's a it's few fun, things man. you said there. I just got to say too, I got to say yeah, one thing real sure. quick because when sure, I put sure. out that recipe, I put it on YouTube and um, I had some people, some notably Greek people saying like, you know, I'm Greek. This is not baklava. You are wrong. And <laughs> my only answer there is do not knock it till you try it. It sounds ridiculous. When I first came up with the idea, I was like, like baklava used to be my favorite. I've had lots of baklavas. And, um, and yeah, when I first tried it, I, I actually, on the video I made it, that was the first time I'd ever made it and tried it. So like I, I made it as an experiment video and I was blown away. I was like, this is among the best baklavas I've had. It's crazy how good it is. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to get her to make it. 
that's what I was going to touch on a few a few things. So, firstly, food combining, and yeah. secondly, the smoothies. So, I think we'll just start with the smoothies. How do you feel about digestion with smoothies, and how do you drink them? Do you sip them really slowly, or, or yeah? So, how do you feel about them? Because for me personally, in the past, when I've used maybe like frozen berries and bananas, I felt it didn't digest too well. So. Any tips for people with smoothies? Absolutely. You know, I'm a big believer in food combining, especially as we're streamlining our digestion or if we have like a specific condition that we're looking to streamline our entire lifestyle plan. Um, I don't look at food combining as a black and white rule that uh, means good digestion or horrible digestion. Instead, I think it's a bit of a continuum and a tool for optimal digestion. That took me about 15 years to come to. I used to be in the rule book of food combining. And I've often said that I was so intent on food combining that when I saw other people not combining well, I'd get a stomach ache. And I'm not even kidding. Uh I would. And that actually also exemplifies it a bit. If we really see it as rules and we're really stressed and uptight about it, we can eat something that, you know, now I would probably be totally fine digestion, digesting but you may actually get major issues because your mind's like, Oh my God, this is a poor, di- poor combo. You tighten up. Yeah. Um, you know, so our thought does have a big impact on it. But that said, I still am a proponent of food combining because it does have basic principles, which optimize and streamline digestion. It, it, it by example does, you know, I've uh, tried certain things that, you know, didn't cause issues after I let go of it being a rule book instead saw it as a tool. And some things I didn't notice an issue with and other things I did still notice a bit of an issue with. Um, one of those, for example, you know, a lot of people say melons should only be eaten alone. Yep. I actually find adding citrus like lemon, lime, pineapple actually helps the digestion. For example, with watermelon, I never am satisfied if I eat a mel- meal of just watermelon and I'm more prone to melon belly, like a, a sharp pain, yeah. especially if I try to make a big meal of it. But if I squeeze lemon over top of all of it, I don't get that, you know, um, ah, okay. and I, I just feel I'm more satiated and it digests even better. And in my consulting practice, I've seen this to be almost completely universally uh, felt for other people who try it, unless they're really just stuck on, nope, this is a bad combo and they get stressed about it. So wow. that's one. But the other one that I actually, I still do notice a little bit of not per- perfect digestion with, with is if I mix acid fruits with sweet fruits. So if I make a banana smoothie with oranges or grapefruit, which I see some people do, I can do it, but I notice my digestion isn't as good. I'll have more burps, more farts, uh, that kind of stuff. And, you know, that even can lend to, when you said berries with bananas, I mean, strawberries are the only acid berry. All the other ones are sub-acid. So I've noticed if I do banana strawberry, while it tastes amazing, it tastes like strawberry yogurt kind of, Um, I do notice that I don't digest it as well as say just bananas or banana blueberry, for example. Now I've blathered a lot, but kind of answering your question more directly than no, no, keep going. Um, when I, when I'm having a smoothie in an optimal situation, I'm mindfully drinking it rather slowly, um, chewing without being like obnoxious about it. Like, you know, like. (laughs) <laughs> I'm letting my saliva mix with the food. I'm enjoying yeah. it and slowly drinking it down. And yeah, that, that works the best. Um, other times I might be in a rush or I might be like on the computer and drinking and I'm doing it a little less mindfully and I still find it digests really well as long as I'm paying attention to other aspects of digestion. And some of those might be, 
one, making sure that I'm actually hungry. I'm not just trying to squish a craving or squish an irritable kind of feeling in my body. Mm. A lot of people think that hunger is anxious or irritable or specific when in fact it's a pleasant, relaxed feeling, often accompanied by salivate, salvation, salivation, not salvation, salivation, and it's not <laughs> like specific. Yeah, yeah, both, exactly. So, um, you know, if, if we're having an anxious, irritable, hangry episode, we're better served to sip on some water and to ride that out for 10, 15 minutes until we feel calm and balanced and our body gets through that detoxification or cleansing cycle, then our digestion is much more turned on and we're going to have an easier time digesting it. Mm. Um, the other thing is if we get some activity before, like we talked about before, if we're eating a big you know, banana meal, if we get even 15 minutes of activity before, or even better yet, if it's after a gym session or some sports, we're going to digest it way better. Um, if we're looking at that banana meal or even say a juicy mango meal and we're thirsty, but we just go straight to that food, we're not going to digest it as efficiently as if we would have had some water and satisfied our thirst first and then ate for food. You know, um, yeah. if we're stressed, irritable or tired, we're not going to digest it as well. Right. So it, it comes down to a lot of these different factors, but the more we stack our cards in our favor and we make sure we're hydrated, we make sure we're rested, we get some activity, um, we try not to be at a high level of stress when we're eating and we observe food combining and we eat, you know, and, and like appreciate it, that's going to all lend to even better digestion with smoothies. Now, mm. this all said, eating whole foods is going to be the easiest for our digestion. You know, there's no oxidization, there's you know, uh, we're going to naturally want to chew it more. So there's going to be more of the enzymes mixing with the food. Uh, and that'll actually bring me to one last point I'll make on this. Sure. Is I also am a proponent of vacuum blending. I don't do it every single time, but I actually really do notice the difference in the flavor, the consistency, uh, the vibrancy, and the digestion. So I, I do vacuum blend as well. And that's been a, a little bit of a yeah. game changer in what I do. Yeah, just quickly, can you explain what vacuum blending is for the audience? Yeah, for sure. So it, it actually has been uh, fairly common in Japan, which often, you know, they're a little bit ahead of the curve with some technology and stuff like that. Uh, and it's, it's getting more and more known and popular in the States and around the world and stuff like that. But really all it is is putting a vacuum on your blender carafe and making sure that if the blender carafe or container is airtight so that before you blend, you suck as much of the oxygen out of the container as possible so yeah. that there's less oxygen in the container to be whipped into the mix. And the reason for this is a lot of blenders are designed so that they really pull a lot of air into the food itself. And what that does is it actually the oxygen um, diminishes the antioxidant capacity of the food. The antioxidants um, in the food itself are be, being utilized by the oxidization caused from the air being whipped in. And that's why like banana smoothies turn brown and, you know, yeah. often in a really powerful blender, they'll actually feel a little bit frothy and whipped. You'll actually notice there's a little bit of air bubbles in it, small, but still in there. And it's it's been really shown and proven. I've, I mean, I've done my little side-by-side -side tests and I can see and feel and taste the differences, but it's also been mm -hmm. measured that you can lose up to 60% of the antioxidant capacity in a regular blender compared to utilizing a vacuum blender. And if those antioxidants aren't um, being utilized in just that blending process, 
they can instead be utilized in the body for a whole bunch of different oxidative properties and, and help us in our, our overall health endeavors. And, you know, the main differences in terms of what you personally notice, though, when you do it is the smoothie actually feels wetter. It sounds weird, but like it feels more like you're drinking liquid and water rather than a frothy smoothie that you feel the air bubbles. Yeah. Also, because of that, the flavor is more intense. Um, the colors are more intense as well. If you're like taking pictures and stuff like that, and especially if you're taking pictures over 10, 15 minutes while you're setting up all your stuff, because the antioxidants are also closely related to the flavonoids and the, the color in the food itself. Um, and also if you're someone who likes to make things and put them in jars and, and keep them in the fridge or you're going mm -hmm. to work, well, it, it stays fresher longer with less separation. So some smoothies, they separate. This helps yeah. it actually stay more together and stay fresher with that higher antioxidant capacity. Uh, so it just lasts longer. Okay. And, and I will just say really briefly too, uh, sure. I do have a video on hacking a uh, regular Vitamix and making your own vacuum blender. Um, you can buy separate containers that go on Vitamix blenders. Um, and you can even just buy vacuum blenders online of various different things. Uh, different brands. And I am also putting out a video fairly soon. I'll, I always say like in the next week, but it might be a week or two, uh, <laughs> specifically updating my, my hack video, the best hack that I've now found to make my current Ascent series Vitamix into a really high quality vacuum blender for reasonably cheap. Perfect. Perfect. That, that explains a lot because for me personally, I wasn't really enjoying smoothies a lot, but that's something I'll look into. It, it makes complete sense because I've heard just how it reduces the nutrient content. But yeah, I'll definitely look into vacuum blending. Especially it's good for digestion too, because then you're not burping up the air bubbles and it's like a little yeah. less volume. And it's just it, a lot of people have yeah. found that I've talked to that it, it helps digestion as well, actually. Cool. Especially for people on the go, like maybe they're traveling or like you say, they're an athlete. They just want... The calories quickly maybe they don't want to be prepping in the kitchen then it can be great because not everyone can really eat 10 bananas or something like that they're maybe mm -hmm. not at that current point so i think smoothies can be a great tool there and Absolutely. not get not getting too caught up on oh i might lose certain nutrients yeah but maybe you're not wasting an hour or forcing yourself to eat maybe like suboptimal fruit because it, it can it can mask for me i've noticed if the fruit isn't the best quality, it can kind of mask a bit of the inadequacy, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, no, 100%. And I, I also really want to showcase and say that I, I'm not worried about drinking, you know, non-vacuum blended smoothies by any means at all. I still have non-vacuum blended smoothies. It's not one of the, once you go vac, you don't go back, you know? It's like, yeah, you know, yeah. I, can, I can travel and wherever I go, you know, I, I'm not concerned about it. It's just if I have the ability it is a preference because I noticed the difference uh, in quality and taste and all those kinds of things. And I totally hundred percent agree. If someone's having a hard time getting enough calories, it's much easier if you add in smoothies and you know, if, um, yeah, it's just, it's much easier to get in more calories with smoothies and it does definitely make like suboptimal or just mediocre fruit, just taste a little bit better, you know? And I mean, you can also, of yeah. course, add in some things. So if you have bananas that just aren't amazing and you don't really enjoy eating them, just banana after a banana, but you can blend them up and add a couple of dates or add a, a you know, little bit of uh, blueberries and boom, you know, like, yeah. you know, twice as good and you'll have way more enjoyment. Yeah, I think that's important. 
because we always myself included i'm always thinking optimal 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 but if i really enjoy the taste of it and it's maybe slightly suboptimal you know then it's not really it's not really something to get caught up on because you've got to enjoy your life you know that's something i'm realizing and trying to trying to do every day and i was just going to ask you on the smoothie topic I'm conscious of your time. I've only got a few more questions, but I'm loving where I'm this... not worried, man. We, we okay, could go as long perfect. as you want and split it into two if you want. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. Perfect. Okay, we'll keep it rolling. But I was going to ask you about juicing. How do you feel about juicing? Because there's a lot of dogma in this movement around juicing. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Um, you know, the short answer, I rarely, rarely juice. Um, if someone made green juices for me, and bought the ingredients, I would drink them. I'd, I'd have a green juice every day. I, I'm not like against green juices. I'm not against juices. Um, yeah. I'm not strictly in favor of lots of fruit juices. I think that fruits are better with their fiber intact. It, it allows mm. for a more streamlined uh, absorption and less insulin spikes. Um, you know, often when people are on a lot of juices or juices only, they, they can seem a little bit like a little bit uh what's it called um stimulated you know and i mean it is yeah. slightly stimulating like can be like eh, you know like i'm like i feel it so good i'm on the juice you know it's like yeah, yeah. like you know obviously <laughs> that's a, a thousand times better than eating you know like you know standard american food or cooked food or anything like, like like that you know but um I, I am definitely more of a proponent of whole foods i i do think that mother mother nature did it right and uh you know that the example of all the other animals on the planet and our physiology it, it just sets us up for whole foods and that there is a vast distinct benefit to fiber most people don't get enough fiber um so yeah I, i'm more of a proponent of whole foods but i think there can be a time and a place if people have a hard time getting in the greens and veggies um, or they just really have a strong preference for juices and they you know even let's say someone's a little newer to the lifestyle and they're burning through old wastes you know maybe they need a little extra alkalinity and it can be beneficial to add in some green juices if their digestive system can't handle a couple pounds of greens a day well yeah sure mm -hmm. i mean add in the juices it's a nutrient dense way and to get to get more food in for less digestive effort um but i would make whole foods the mainstay of the lifestyle you know short-term protocols are different from lifestyle to me and um I'm really, really much more in favor of lifestyle and, and getting used to a sustainable lifestyle rather than putting a ton of time and attention into short term protocols. Uh, I, I sometimes do juiced smoothies too, you know, so like, say, make a green juice and then blend bananas into it. You know, I, I used to actually also collect okay. grass from my backyard, blend it with some water and make a grass juice and then blend bananas into it as a inexpensive free way to make green smoothies, you know, like you don't don't have to be buying expensive greens a lot of times greens are really expensive and to juice them wow that's a pretty hefty bill but mm -hmm. any grass is juiceable as long as there's not animal pee or fertilizers or anything like that on it you can juice it or just blend it and strain it through a nut milk bag and i do want to mention that because you don't want to be eating the grass fiber but if you get rid of the grass fiber a lot of the nutrients can be in the juice or in the water wow that's that's something i've never heard actually it, it makes sense to me because I've heard juicing greens is beneficial. So any grass in there in your back garden, as long as obviously, yeah. like you said, there's no animal pee, which in my house, I think the whole garden's probably covered in, in my dog's wee by now. But <laughs> if you, if you, yeah, want you can, cheap... you can have a special patch. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, if, you, if you're out in nature and you know what's going on, you can, you can do that. You know, like 
I've been walking along in places where I know, know weren't sprayed and just grabbed a handful and chewed on the grass and spit out the pulp. And it's just like a free wheatgrass shot, you know, or grass shot. Um, but yeah, that's a, I, I think I have a video called like unlimited free green juice, you know, and that's basically the premise of it is that you can just utilize any grass and, and make it into green juice. Wow. Okay. That's something new. Something I've never heard, but yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. I've always thought, could you eat grass or is there any, any beneficial nutrient in grass? That, that makes sense. That makes sense. I wanted to quickly talk about, I just realized I didn't talk about kind of, do you eat conventional? So just from the, the store or the supermarket, as people say, uh, and how do you fit, how do you feel about like the organic versus conventional? Well, yeah. It's a big yeah. topic, definitely a big topic. Um, I'll start off just by saying that the majority of the food, like if I was talking about percentage points, probably the majority of the food I've eaten in the last 20 years is conventional, um, at least by calorie. You know, I, I've definitely made more of an effort with, you know, greens and certain fruits like strawberries and stuff like that to get organic or just, you know, get wild and pick when I can. Um, in certain circumstances and during certain periods of time on my raw food diet, I was able to get much, much more organic, say when I'm in Costa Rica or when I was living in Los yeah. Angeles and coaching, coaching a skateboarder who, you know, just was like, go get whatever you want. You know, like it wasn't yeah, on my budget. Um, then, yeah, then I, I got a lot more organic. Um, some periods of time I'm getting 20% of my food organic and some periods of time it can be up to a hundred percent. But again, over the longest time frame, most of it has been conventional, at least calorie-wise. Um, I, I don't stress about it whatsoever. Um, it's not something that brings up any anxiousness or worry. Uh, I, I have a preference in general for organic or wildcrafted or you know self-grown. Um, but conventional has still served me well. It has led to you know, better healing than any healings that my doctors in Cairo have ever seen, better test mm. results than my doctors have ever seen, um, and fast recovery of my body and, and even mood and energy levels these last 20 years, right? So, um, you know, and then when you really get into the weeds of it too, you know, a lot of people like to make things black and white, you know, like organic, good, conventional, bad. Yeah. But things are very, very seldom black and white, you know, and when you really, really look into it, in some circumstances, conventional is better for our health than organic. You know, for example, there are some grapes that because the inorganic, or sorry, because of the uh, less effectiveness of the organic sprays, because a lot of people don't realize like, organic doesn't mean no sprays, it just means, um, it just organic means- approved organic approved non -chem synthetic chemical based pesticides herbicides fungicides rodenticides you know all those different things right so in some cases because the organic sprays are less effective than the conventional sprays they can be using more of them more often and closer to to actually bringing them out to the public right so in some cases with grapes there have been tests shown that the amount of organic sprays is more detrimental to human health than the conventional sprays, you know? So again, it's wow. not totally black and white. Um, it's not always better for human health. In general, it's better for human health. In general, it's better for the environment. But that also then comes down to, are these organic companies doing it for human health or are they doing it for the organic label? And are they trying to cut corners or do false things, right? Mm. Um, are they supplementing their soil? You know, like some people like to say that organic always tastes better. And I'm sorry, I, I've eaten more produce than most people I know. And I've had conventional that was 
way better than a lot of the organic. And I've had organic yeah, that is way better than some of the conventional. I personally just look for food, like flavor. Like I want to make sure it's really good quality because if it's, if it's tasting really good, that's one going to mean that it has a higher brick score and two, much more likely that's going to have a higher nutrient density score as well. Because uh, all those things go into the flavor of the food. So my number one priority is to look for quality that tastes good, that I enjoy eating. Um, two, that it's within a budget that I can maintain and afford. So most of the yeah. time, if organic is about one, if it's comparable price or if it's like 1.5 times the price, then I'll get organic. But if, once it gets up to double the price per pound or kilogram, I start looking really first and foremost, okay, is it that much better quality? Or would I rather have double the amount of the conventional and it tastes better anyway, you know? So um, that's kind of the way I look at it. Um, yeah. I also consider too, like I, I actually call farmers and I call the numbers on boxes of produce. I haven't recently for a while, but I have done that in the past and ask what are their procedures? Like what do they normally do? And for example, with dates, I called uh, the Bard family date company and I called uh, another company, this is probably eight years ago. And they said that their conventional dates are essentially organic dates. They just aren't grown on the same uh, certified land and they don't spray the dates unless there's an infestation, which is very rare. Um, I found the same thing out calling numerous um, persimmon growers saying that essentially their, their organic ones are the same as their conventional ones. They only spray them if there's an infestation. Uh, so it's okay. really rare that they're spraying them. Um, so, you know, again, this is one of those things where not everything is black and white. It's not as, uh, tied up in a bow as possible. And for me, what I feel the best about is to do the best I can and not stress it. Cause I think the stress is probably even worse for us than the conventional produce. hundred percent, a hundred percent. I'm glad you said about the taste as well. Cause that's kind of my guideline and criteria. If something tastes good then I think it must be full of nutrients and it must be beneficial, like you say, because uh, recently I've been reincorporating grapes more because I heard they were part of like the dirty dozen, they call it, obviously, some of the most sprayed things. But it's interesting what you say there about some conventional grapes being better than organic. So I think yeah. there's so many different factors and just doing the best with what you have. Like if you fancy grapes, if they're tasting nice and they're conventional, then for me personally, I'm going to eat the grapes, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, and another further thing to even say on that, too, is recognizing that the Dirty Dozen Clean 15 is done in the States in a certain area, um, testing throughout the States and stuff. And here in the EU and I mean, UK as well, there is much more stringent uh, mm. uh, qualifications, you know, not only for organic, but just for conventional produce. And a, a lot of pesticides that are legal in the States aren't legal here. You know, they've been deemed to be dangerous mm. for human health. So. Um, sadly for everyone listening that's in the States and Canada, it is a little bit more, uh, a little bit more hazy there as compared to Europe and stuff like that. And, and something I noticed specifically, actually, that's kind of neat to kind of showcase when I'm in USA or Canada, if I eat meals of conventional grapes, I get a reaction. Like I actually notice a little bit of a tickle in the back of my throat my cheeks get rosy red and I, I don't yeah. feel as good. And so when I'm in the States and Canada, I do actually opt for organic grapes. Um, or if I'm going to a farmer's market and I can talk to the farmer and ask him what they're doing. In those cases, I've had conventional and had no reaction. Whereas here in the, in the EU, I've been getting cases like, I mean, it's ridiculous, getting cases of amazing, amazing grapes that are conventional, but they're like less than a dollar a pound. You know, like they're, they're actually less than wow. that. They're 
it's just really, really inexpensive. So I'm eating a lot of them and I get zero reaction from, so I'm paying more attention to that, to my body and his feedback than, you know, like the dirty dozen, cause it doesn't always apply across every scenario. And it's the exact yeah. same thing with apples too. In the States and Canada, I don't really eat conventional apples cause I notice a difference here when I eat them, no difference at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Just listening to your body and the intuition. I think it's really key. That's, that's the main takeaway I've got from that anyway. And then I was going to ask you, especially with like grapes and things like that, how do you feel with seeded versus seedless? Yeah, that's a huge topic too. And one that I intend to make a, a really, really in-depth video on because I've been thinking about studying and talking and taking notes from various different viewpoints for well over a decade on that. Um, the condensed version of it is I'm not worried at all about hybridization. I mean, we're all hybrids, you know, you're a hybrid, I'm a hybrid, everything yeah. that's living is a hybrid, unless you're a result of incest, you know, the same family members in the <laughs> parental units. Um, you know, and know. as far as so like hybrids, you know, like people talking about like bananas aren't real and blah, blah, blah. You know, there's, there's history of sweet bananas for 2000 plus years and bananas naturally went from seeded fruit to um, propagating off of corms off the root themselves. That wasn't human intervention. Um, even that said, I think that intelligent use of, uh, of crossbreeding, you know, just like, you know, hopefully you're intelligently picking a partner that has the traits yeah. that you want is the same with, you know, intelligently crossbreeding plants for the characteristics we want. Sure. Can that go too far to the point where we're just focusing on sugar and not as much on nutrition? Sure. But I'm not really worried about nutrition when I'm eating the most nutritious foods on the planet, calorie for calorie. Um, so I'm not worried about hybridization. Uh, when we're talking about seedless fruit, you know, fruits do go seedless in nature by themselves. A lot of people think that that doesn't happen, but you know, namely the first seeded persimmons. And I mean, a lot of persimmons actually, as the trees get older, they go seedless themselves. I prefer seedless fruit. Okay. I actually prefer seedless fruit every time. Um, Grapes, you know, when they're found to go seedless, which they do in nature, then those plants can be grafted and you can then grow more plants. I'm not worried about grafting. That's simply taking an off cutting of a specific variety of fruit yep. food and then grafting that onto the, the uh, stem of another variety. And it's amazing because like, let's say you have an orange tree, right? And the oranges on it suck, you know, that happens. Like, you know, when you grow yeah. from seed, you, you don't get an exact genetic duplicate of that fruit. It's a new one. So you can have the best oranges in the world, grow that fruit from seed, and it has a completely different orange that sucks, right? Well, yeah. that tree's already big. It's already fruiting. It's taken a long time, some investment. You can cut some of the branches of that, and then you can cut some branches from that other fruit tree that had amazing oranges, graft it on. You just uh, cut it in a certain way, put it on there, and wrap around it so that it actually attaches to that plant. And then that branch will grow the same fruit from the original. It'll be like perfect. So, and you can do that, wow. like you can take six different varieties of citrus, graft them all onto that original tree that had crappy oranges and have six different varieties of oranges on that same tree and not grow any of the crappy oranges that it originally grew. And, you know, like, wow. yeah, this, I, I can understand why some people might get a little bit weird about that that you know that's on the extreme end of grafting and stuff like that I, I have no qualms with that um you know other methods of producing seedless mm. fruit are just making sure that the um that the flower isn't fertilized so it'll just then produce a fruit that doesn't have the uh 
the the viable seed in it it may have some seeds in it that are very small and basically unfertilized and you don't notice them that's the case with grapes and stuff like that um similar with watermelons and stuff like that um so yeah the science is pretty clear that there's no negative ramifications of it um just like if i got if i got a vasectomy for example i wouldn't be like oh my god i'm an unvital horrible person that i would never want to deal with well you know an unfertilized fruit that you know, for the first place, the seed itself doesn't really want to be eaten. Um, you know, yeah. usually with grapes, for example, the seeds really bitter. And, you know, while some people yeah, may yeah. enjoy crunching on a few seeds, I don't really know anyone who enjoys eating pounds of grapes and chewing every grape seed. You know, I'd, no. I'd much rather have the seedless fruit. I'm not concerned about the nutrition difference. I'm not concerned about it not being vital. Um, Nothing to me stands out as that being really a logical outcome, more so an emotional thought around a philosophy. Uh, so, but I'll, I'll go much more yeah. into it when I make a dedicated video because there's there's a lot more info on that subject. For sure, for sure, I'll be in- very interested in watching that. It's a very nuanced topic, and like you say, there's so many different aspects. Like everything we've talked about, there's no black and white, and the no. the. the greater you dig the deeper you dig the more you realize just like especially with these studies like oh then they studied a rat and injected them and it's like it's not really relevant so like you say once you dig deeper you realize it's just like a buzzword like people love organic or seeded or hybrid or gmo things like that but yeah huge intuition is best yeah and i i do want to mention with that too like i i apologize to interrupt your flow i just want to make sure uh, this comes across too is, um, you know, if someone really notices, like, hey, for example, I know some people who are like, you know what, I always go for seeded watermelon because it tastes better and it digests better for me. And, you know, if that's the case, heck, I mean, if your preference is seeded, that's great. I'm not trying to say like seeded is bad. I just, I find seedless to be very enjoyable, easier to eat, especially if you end up smoothing it. Like I like to make banana grape smoothies and I'm not going to do that with seeded grapes, you know, um, mm-hmm. they're often less expensive. They're more accessible. Um, and I, I can't see from any point of view why there's any detriment to having them in comparison, um, especially because I genuinely enjoy them more. And enjoyment of yeah. your food is a big factor in your overall well-being and health as well. And that's the only thing I want to mention on that, too, is if you really feel like, oh, my God, like I just I so prefer seeded fruit and I digest it better. Also, I'd invite thinking into that and thinking, okay, is that because I think it's better and because I stress if I don't eat seeded fruit or I have some kind of tightness in me thinking I'm doing something questionable. And if that's the case, see if you can let go of that and test it from more of an even kiltered place of experimentation. And that's something that I've found really valuable within this raw food lifestyle as a long term is letting go of fears, letting go of judgments, letting go of right and wrong. You know, eating a raw food diet doesn't make you better. It doesn't make you more worthy. Um, you know, it just brings about your higher potential for certain aspects of life. You know, it, it simplifies your digestive processes and your your nutrients you're getting in and all that kind of stuff. So having that flexibility and that uh, that knowledge that no matter what you choose, it doesn't impact your self-worth. I used to beat myself up. I used to think if I wasn't a raw foodist, I wasn't as good. I wouldn't succeed. I put everything on raw food, like raw food equals yeah. success. There's a little bit more to it. And our mindset has a lot to do with it. And if we're judging, if we're, you know, whether it's ourselves or others um, and anxious about certain foods, that's going to have a pronounced effect. And it can actually impact our view of how things are from a less 
uh, less accurate place, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think that's really, really important uh, for me personally. I, th I think basically everyone in this movement can relate. I think at one time we've all put so much weight on the diet, like, oh, you know, the diet is because of the diet, blah, blah, blah. But there's, as we've said, there's so many different aspects to health. It's a whole holistic mm -hmm. picture. So like you say, just letting go of concepts and just actually from a non-biased neutral point of view, just experiencing something for yourself and then seeing how it resonates with you and your body. That's really, really key. And I'm glad you, you've highlighted that. And especially coming from someone who's been doing it 20 years, I think that's quite valuable for everyone to, to at least give a little bit of credence and a bit of credibility. So yeah, I'm getting Absolutely. conscious of the time here, especially on okay. these kind of diets. Uh, I myself feel the need to wee a little bit more, so I'll just yeah yeah. I, I'm I don't think I'm too. the only one. I'm near there too. Yeah yeah. So um, yeah, I'll just end with the ten rapid fire questions that I've recently Can started I add one doing. One last thing. I just want to add sure, one last sure. little thing. Um, of course, with what we were just talking about too. I think it's also important to recognize that where we are right now isn't where we're going to always be. And our digestion, our mindset, our all of those things can change our microbiome and all those things. So um, that's why, again, I, I, I do recommend flexibility and non-judgment and honoring, you know, honoring our true callings, what we really want to experience in this life um, from an unbiased, unjudgmental mindset and recognizing, too, what our experience is from that. Let's say you have you know, a smoothie or you have a, a different dish with different ingredients in it, you know, it may feel different in your body now than it does in six months when your diet has slowly progressively changed little bits here and there. And so I, I just, I just want to mention that because sometimes people can, you know, let's say they've just been juice fasting or they've been mono eating and they have a salad. And they're like, Oh, this obviously isn't good for me. Greens aren't great because I got burps and maldigestion. Well, if instead it was a slow incremental increase in the amount of greens and diversity in your diet, your microbiome can change. And six months later, you might have that same thing and digest it perfectly. Um, whereas some people might make the decision, well, again, greens are bad. I shouldn't have them. They slow detox, right? Whereas yeah, yeah. on the concept of a, you know, six months down the road or a year down the road, it can be a different experience. And, uh, you know, we can find out different information that leads us to different outcomes around those same kind of realities yeah yeah that's really important especially for me because i'm quite a simple eater especially mono eating but now i'm getting a little bit bored of that um so i want to reincorporate more greens more variety in my diet so i think that's really important like you say just because it's like this now it's not always going to be this way it's like when i went from mm -hmm. my seven days of watermelon then i introduced another fruit i can't remember exactly what it was but yeah it felt way more dense and heavy but that's obviously compared to the watermelon it's not like the other exactly. fruit is bad it's just the standpoint mm. you're coming from. And at the end Absolutely. of the day, like you say, just slow increments and just, yeah. yeah you, you might see me eating like a five pound dinner stew and be like, oh, well, I'll try that. And then you try it. Yeah. It's like disaster, Ooh. you know, whereas the the surest way, you know, um, another uh, raw food presenter made a book called Green for Life, Victoria Botinko. And, you know, they actually did studies on this showing that if you just add like a small handful of greens to every smoothie or just every meal, you just instead of having like a five or a couple pound green salad at the end of the day, you just add a small handful to every meal you eat. So like at the end of your mono meal, you just have a small handful of greens that slowly yeah. increases your hydrochloric acid or your HCL in your stomach. 
which improves the digestion, not only of the greens, but of protein and amino acids, and uh, is a benefit to have a slightly higher high HCL production anyway, then all of a sudden your ability to digest greens slowly ramps up. So it's just like, you know, slow increments of adding a little bit more if it's something someone wants to do. Um, I definitely do think in the long term, greens are a really yeah. important part of the lifestyle and the diet. Uh, fruit being the caloric source and greens being a little bit of an extra punch in minerals and amino acids and all that good stuff. But uh, slow and steady wins the race. And yeah. recognizing, again, this is a marathon rather than a race uh, yeah. is, is a really advantageous way to look at it, I think. Yeah, that's a very key mindset to adopt. Long-term thinking in anything in life always seems to yeah. serve you better rather than the sh short-term instant gratification. But yeah, great point. So I'll just run through these 10 quick fire rapid fire yeah, questions <laughs> i get excited no, and just good. want to blurp everything out no 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 it's, it's all good i'm just <laughs> conscious of uh, the bladder capacity but yeah anyway so number one what's your favorite fruit if i have to pick one durian but um yeah i wouldn't tried. want to eat it as much as some others you know like mango maybe you know bananas for utility and inexpensiveness you know like yeah but Flavor wise, and just like while you're eating it, just like being like, oh, eyes rolling back, it's probably during. Yeah, it's something I'm going to try once and then probably leave it at that because it's quite fatty, isn't it? But it yeah. it is fatty, but I tell you, it's uh, it's it's you know, it's like fifteen to twenty five percent, so it's less than an avocado, oh. for example, and uh, it's sweet and it is the king of fruits. It's higher in protein than most. I'm I don't eat it for nutrition. I eat it because you can't get that great. flavor anywhere else. It's like it's like the absolute best like vanilla custard or like, you know, like hints of any other flavor. And I always recommend, this is actually something that uh, is poignant just because you mentioned it. I always recommend trying a new food at least three times because you never know the quality. I've, ha I've had durian where I True. ate it and I spit it out. And then I've had times where I swear, I was like, there's nothing better this on the planet, you know? And like, it's, it's amazing. People will travel across the world for it. And with good it's, reason is the king. It's true. It's true. You can't knock just one fruit. You've got to try, like you said, multiple times, that repeatability. Yeah. Anyway, describe yourself in one word. Uh, silly. <laughs> I like that. I like that. What's one thing that everyone needs to buy? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, pants. Yeah, yeah. In this day and age, it's quite useful. <laughs> What's one book that everyone needs to read? Ooh. I'm going to give you two I'm going to, for food. I'm going to say 80, 10, 10. Um, yep. and for, uh, philosophy beyond words by Sirius Sachinanda. Okay. Okay. That's something to add for the reading list for me. What are three things you can't live without? Uh, love, uh, activity and sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I guess food should be in there too, but yeah. Yeah. That's great. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Now, this can be from someone else or intuition, internal. Wow. Um, <laughs> my, 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 I'll just go with my first instinct because the, the first thing that came up uh, in my mind was uh, to not take anything personal. Yeah, yeah, that's key. There's a, there's a min, million things I could say, but that's, that, that was the first one. Yeah, yeah, no, you, that's good. You trust in your intuition. What's your greatest strength and biggest weakness? Um, 
probably counting everyone as my friend. You know, like I, I just, I, I live with the belief that everyone's my friend. Just some people maybe don't consider me their friend back, you know? So it's, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll open my heart to anyone and, uh, you know, like give everyone at least one chance and sometimes two, you know, but, uh, but even still, if they, they betray me, they're still my friend, you know, like I, I, I always have love in my heart, but obviously that could, could backfire in some ways as well. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. I, I, I choose to see that as positive. So, yeah, I like what you did there. You combined the two, so it's like greatest strength and biggest weakness into one. That, that's pretty cool. I like how you interpreted that. Um, what would you tell your twenty-year-old self? Ooh, that's good. I mean, it wasn't that long after as twenty-three when I really got into rough wood. I think. If I 20, 20 year old self, maybe I, I would have uh, implemented this a little, just that little bit sooner and uh, told myself also to relax with it. Cause I was, like I said, I was so black and white. It was like, you know, yeah. especially when I first got into raw food, it was like perfect raw yeah. foodist, perfection and ascension or falling into the pits and being a wasteoid, you know, it was so black and white, you know, so being a little bit easier on myself with it and just having a, a clear direction. Yeah, that sounds a lot like me at the minute. So, and I'm 20, so you're kind of speaking to me there. That's something I need to uh, implement. <laughs> Do you believe in having a purpose? If so, what's your purpose in life? Yeah, I think purpose is incredibly important. You know, people that are purposeless, they are going to be living with less enthusiasm, less happiness, and and less longevity as well. It's kind of proven that you know purpose brings us to higher heights and uh, and longer lives. You know, so. Um, unless maybe that purpose is like jet fire flying or something. Right. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I I'd say my purpose, what I've really, really aimed with is to live my life authentically with a drive for self-improvement and compassion at the heart of it and to make a living doing that. You know, that's, that's what I feel my, pur my purpose is just to like try and live it, yeah. like try and live the health model in a balanced way where it's not just only health, you know, it's like living a ha happy, content uh, lifestyle and just share as much as I can to help people to do the same. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I think, I think that's a great purpose for anyone to have. <laughs> and finally, what are you grateful for today? Oh man, I I'm grateful for everything. Honestly, like I I'm grateful to be able to have this conversation with you. I'm grateful for the big stack of food i have ready for me in the in the kitchen i'm <laughs> grateful too. to go to the bathroom later i'm, I'm, I'm grateful yeah. for my little kitty here all curled up and grateful to have this body and to be able to express it through my skateboarding and all the other things i do in my life so uh, my family my friends yeah there's there's too many things to be grateful for if that's possible yeah no it's definitely not def or it definitely i don't know yeah i agree <laughs> and finally uh it's been great speaking to you so Feel free to let the people know where they can find you, what you've got going on in the future. Yeah, just plug yourself. Appreciate that. We appreciate that. Uh, well, you can find me everywhere with The Raw Advantage, but my main website's just therawadvantage.com. Yep. I've got the Peace, Love, and Seasonal Fruit vibes going on. That's all on The Raw Advantage. Uh, I have a free app that you can get through my website that's available on Android and Apple and has like 100 plus free recipes and videos and food combining chart and, and succinct information on there. Uh, I have a retreat going on in January, Costa Rica. There's still a few spots. It's a raw nice. food yoga surf adventure. So it's like the deal is fun, but there's education and learning how to make food as a chef. Obviously got lots of recipe books and all that fun stuff. Um, 
yeah, that's the main stuff. I got, I got a lot of other fun stuff coming on, but you can, you can connect with it on my hub, therodvantage.com. If you sign up there, you get three free eBooks and my curated email list, which has, you know, like I have like 600 videos, but for a year it sequences out what I think are the best recipes, most important information and interviews, you know, weekly in your inbox. So you just get hands spoon fed it. Right. But uh, that's all yeah. theradvantage.com. You can find it out there. Wow. So a lot going on, a lot going on. I'll be checking out some of those resources for sure. But yeah, thanks for this, man. It's been great. It's been great. And yeah. Reciprocated, man. Absolutely. I appreciate you inviting me on and all the good questions. And, uh, you know, it's fun connecting with you because I, I see my mirrored self too. You know, like you, you're a little <laughs> bit earlier than I was. I got into health at 19, but I didn't dive into raw food until I was really like 23, 24. So it's a... Uh, you're an amazing spot and I, I feel blessed to be able to talk to you from where I am now and hopefully it connects with a lot of people uh, yeah, that are sure in your following. I'm sure it will. Beautiful message. Peace and love everyone. And seasonal fruit. <laughs>